so you need to monitor your blood pressure um, but that's that tends to be about it we don't see some of the suicidal ideation concerns that we do when we start looking at the ssri so for that fact i think that's why you're seeing more and more folks think it's a benefit to add it to the mental health and just one of the mental health treatments thank you for tuning in to the critical conversations podcast brought to you by mind the frontline Established in 2023 as a 501c3, Mind the Frontline is your ally in the journey to support those who selflessly safeguard our communities. Their core mission revolves around pioneering innovation and research, education, and overall well-being specifically tailored to healthcare, military, and public service frontline first responders. The Critical Conversation podcast is a dedicated space for police, fire, EMS, allied health workers, dispatchers, air medical, and military personnel, along with their families. Here, we dive into the heart of the matter, tackling essential topics such as mental health strategies, recovery methods, treatment options, the latest research, and professional development opportunities. Before we dive into today's episode on Critical Conversations, we do want to, however, acknowledge the nature of our discussions. Some of the content discussed may be triggering or intense as we explore the challenges and the triumphs within the first responder community. We recognize that these discussions may evoke strong emotions or memories. If you or someone you know is struggling and needs immediate support, we urge you to reach out to your agency's mental health resources or your local peer support group. In time of mental health crisis, you can always contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by phone or via text at 988 Please remember you are never alone and help is always available. At Mind the Frontline, we are more than just a podcast. We are a community committed to fostering resilience within the entire first responder family. So whether you're on the front lines or supporting those who are, we invite you to subscribe, engage, and be a part of this vital mission. To learn more, please visit us at www.mindthefrontline.org. Now let's dive into today's critical conversation. Hey there, heroes and advocates. Chris Matana here, your host and fellow frontline warrior, welcoming you back to another powerful episode of Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline. I'm your host, Chris Matana, a former firefighter paramedic and president of Mind the Frontline, and we have an informative episode lined up for you today featuring a fellow first responder who brings his knowledge and experience to our topic today as we dive into ketamine therapy for first responders and better understand kind of the science behind ketamine therapy and the treatment of mental health injuries and some of the disorders. Our guest today is actually Michael Caduce, one of my good friends and my buddy, Love him. I've known him for about six years ago. We met together at uh, EMS World way back in the day. And, you know, we've always stayed in contact. And he's kind of like my go-to guy when it comes to really diving into some of the pharmacology and the research behind things. Because, you know, as you get to know Mike, or if you already know Michael, you know, he really is a big advocate when it comes to research. And Michael brings a lot of good experience as well. You know, he began his EMS career in Iowa, where he received his EMT certificate from Mercy College of Health and sciences in 2006. He's worked as a patient care technician while he was obtaining his bachelor's. He also worked for Urbandale Fire Department as a firefighter paramedic for almost four years before he went on to become an EMT and paramedic program coordinator for almost two years through the University of Iowa. He's also an EMS curricular, uh, an EMS educator. And on top of that, you know, he's built out EMT and paramedic curriculum. He's been a part of EMS world. Uh, he, you'll see him at conferences all over. So, you know, you know, I'm really honored to have him on this today. Uh, 
I'm really honored to have him on today's show where we can kind of dive into, you know, just the science and the thoughts behind ketamine therapy. What is ketamine? How do we use it? Why is it being used right now in mental health and some of the treatment discussions that you see out there? And no, this is not the same ketamine dose that you would give your seizure patients or to perform an RSI. So with that, let's go and dive into today's episode and have some mindful discussion about ketamine therapy. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for making the time. Absolutely, Chris. Um, uh, that was more than um, a complimentary introduction. Um, but you'll, I think you could have just said he's a big nerd. Um, and that would have been sufficient. And also, you and I always tend to run into each other at conferences and then the Delta Lounge after the conference. So we have the conference and the post conference follow up where we plan how we're going to take over the world. So thrilled to be with you. I uh, love your I love your story um, and how it interacts with EMS and the things you're doing for EMS. So if I can add some nerdiness to it, uh, I'm here to do it. You're right. You know, it's funny. It's, it seems like we always, at least in the last, I think, three conferences we've been to, you know, and especially the last one where we actually didn't get to see each other face to face. But guess what? That Delta Lounge always comes through for us. So we were able to wrap up. It does. So I'm, I'm definitely glad to have you here. Thank you very much for making the time. And, you know, when it comes to ketamine therapy, I think a lot of people, you know, have a stigma about it. You know, they're they're scared. There's some fear behind it. At the same time, you know, I think when you look at other people, they're also, uh, they just don't have the knowledge or they're not armed with it. You know, we see a lot of controversy coming out in the news, especially recently with the two paramedics or uh, the medical professionals that were working in Denver that just got convicted. So I think it's really good to have an episode just kind of dispelling some of the myths, talking about the science behind this. And kind of deep dive in so people can understand that, you know, this is a good and viable uh, treatment option for those of you suffering from PTSD, depression, and some of the other things we're going to dive into. Oh, absolutely. And included in that, there's published literature that talks about the benefits to the patient, um, both in human and animal studies. So those are the things we care about when we say, is this a safe and effective treatment? Um, but I think you're exactly right. This isn't the, I'm going to, you know, conduct a delayed sequence intubation of my patient. So I'm going to give an IV infusion of this. Um, ketamine works a lot differently on the brain when we give it in different doses or different routes. Um, and I think that's probably a great jumping off point in terms of the overview of ketamine. Yeah. You know, when we look at ketamine therapy, it definitely has shown a lot of promise with the research, you know, and it continues to come out, which is great because we're seeing more and more research behind mental health treatment therapies, especially as it pertains to first responders come out, which just makes me all giddy. And I know that does for, you know, especially a research nerd like you, but, you know, we, we see it being used more and more, you know, including, you know, post-traumatic stress disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress injuries, um, and I know that we're kind of looking at just like the mechanism. So can you kind of walk us through like, what is the mechanism of ketamine and, and how does it actually work when it comes to PTSD and PTSI and mental health treatment? Absolutely. I think where we have to start is recognizing what's going on inside the brain during a PTSD interaction. So when some, so we go back to our paramedic training, right? When we learned about fight or flight and we learned that we have these catecholamines that are released inside of our brain that really overstimulate the brain. Now, if I'm being chased by a bear, I want to be in fight or flight. I want to get all of those glutocortical, all those corticosteroids flowing in the right direction, getting the blood where it needs to be, um, and getting me either fighting or flying. And that's good. The problem with that is that's not always good. And in fact, we teach our paramedic students, they have to overcome this fight or flight. We've all been in the ambulance when it, the call updates to a cardiac arrest and all of a sudden the gas pedal gets floored. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have to overcome that fight or flight response. Well, 
the fight or fly response that's occurring inside the brain when someone's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder is exactly that. They're in essence reliving the experience, which is triggering, triggering the exact same fight or flight response in the brain. One of those, there's actually a couple of neurotransmitters that we care about. Um, one of them is serotonin, which actually has a little bit to do with depression. And we'll get into that when we talk about some of the other serotonin um, uptake inhibitors that we can administer for, um, for depression and PTSD. But for ketamine specifically, it has more to do with the glutamate. So this is a neurotransmitter that's released in the body. And um, the goal with ketamine is it's supposed to help regulate the glutamine response. And the research would say that seems to match. Now, I think it's easy to think like, okay, we're going to sort of control the levers of glutamate inside the body. And that's in essence what ketamine is going to do for us. You could think of this similar to your patient that you're sedating or you're putting into a, a subconscious or dissociative state. In essence, you're slowing down those neurotransmitters. We don't want to do it again to the extent um, when we're treating someone for PTSD, but in essence, that's what's happening. And it's really occurring mostly around the glutamate neurotransmitter, glutamate stimulates the uh, NMDA receptor site. Um, you've probably heard because we talk in pharmacology about this as a toxin or a drug that people can overdose on, um, things like MDMA and things like that. So um, in essence, it's stimulating the fight or flight response. If we can delay that, if we can sort of slow down those receptor sites from uptaking glutamate, then the thought is that we could reduce the neurotransmitter action or the action that's occurring in the cleft between the neurotransmitters. Um, or between the neurons to solve that. Um, again, there's research that indicates that's what it does. I think there's another point here that's really important in that um, we sometimes think of PTSD as a stress reaction. What's less well understood is what occurs to the brain over the long term. So we don't want to live under a constant fight or flight state, right? That's not good. We know that that increases the yeah, heart rate, increases bad. the blood pressure. That yeah, but it also changes your your brain. So we can see your amygdala, which is what controls your fight or flight response, having concern or it doesn't grow the same way in someone who suffers from PTSD, which is, again, one of the reasons why we want to help control glutamate. Um, and again, we can do that with ketamine. You can do that with a couple other drugs too. Another thing that we see in people who suffer from PTSD is that the frontal cortex may not develop. Now, it's not necessarily that we have large cohort studies that look at this, um, but there's thought behind it in there are some case study that says that we see a smaller frontal cortex. Now, we'll remember from paramedic school or EMT training that um, the frontal cortex is the decision-making part of the brain. So the high-level thought, it's the emotion, it's the long division, it's the ability to make those critical decisions, which we would expect to be underdeveloped in someone who's sort of sustaining a fight-or-flight response. They're much more, um, there's much more stimulus of the amygdala and the hippocampus. So we can actually see changes in the brain for someone suffering from PTSD. So I think, again, Again, worth noting, it's not just the stress reaction in the moment that concerns us, but we do see physiologic or I guess it would be anatomy structure changes in the brain for someone who's living with PTSD. Which is what we're going to get into, I think, next when we talk about neuroplasticity. But you're right, you know, ketamine is, you know, uh, MDM, NMDA, I want to say MDNA, uh, you know, receptor antagonist. So it, it kind of blocks and kind of helps like filter some of that response on the synapses. And we know that the modulation that we're talking about, the glutamate, uh, glutamate modulation, um, you know, it increases that synaptic uh, plasticity, right? The formation of new mm -hmm. neural connections. So like, you know, just like you mentioned, like the anatomy and physiology of the brain, really the anatomy, the structure, we're actually regrowing some of these neural connections with ketamine therapy, you know, and, and where there may have been, you know, aberrant, you know, neural circuits that are causing our brain to kind of be scrambled a little bit, you know, not processing, uh, 
past trauma or current instances, you know, correctly, you know, we're, we're seeing that we're having a lot more effect, you know, on the therapeutic side by building some of these new neurons and really kind of restructuring our brain. And that kind of leads me into like the neuroplasticity of ketamine and, and the synapsis, synaptogenesis, I guess is how they say it. You know, um, when we look at that, you know, what is that doing for our brain structure and, and how does ketamine affect that? I sort of look at it and this brings in the science of the sort of the, the classic treatment for PTSD and for depression right now is SSRIs, right? Serotonin uptake mm -hmm. inhibitors or selective serotonin uptake inhibitors. The, the, the sort of. The, the classic thought was that someone who was suffering from depression had um, too little serotonin in the in the gaps between what we call the cleft, but in the in the synapses between the neurons. So the thought was, well, prevent the reabsorption of the serotonin because again, there's uh, enzymes that come and clean up that serotonin, so the stimulus doesn't continue. Um, if you yeah. think back to how acetylcholine works, that's a very similar mechanism in essence. Um, but in, and so the science was thought that well, we thought that well, it's just not there's just not enough serotonin. So if we don't reabsorb it, we will keep it in the synapses and, and that will go and that will help with depression. The data seems to say that you need to be on an SSRI for at least a couple weeks before we can see a scale change in how much depression the patient suffers from, the, the variability of their depression. However, the, the serotonin left in the synapses takes place after about an hour of being on the drug. So... I think what we, when we talk about neuroplasticity, we have to understand our understanding of the brain is limited and that we're not, you know, we're not there yet, which is why we're talking about all these different therapies. But even the therapies that are recommended in SSRIs are the, are the class one recommendation, the first recommendation for someone suffering from depression is that there's something else going on inside the brain that we don't quite understand. There's probably some people that are getting there, but we have to understand that not only are we changing the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain, but we're, we're changing the structure of the brain. Anytime we change the structure of the brain, we also change the function of the brain. And that's where we can get into neuroplasticity. Uh, if you've got, if, I'm sure you've got something to add on neuroplasticity, but that's in my mind, that's how I look at it. And SSRIs are very well understood and well researched. So that's sort of my basis for where we go there. Yeah, you know, when we talk about that neurosynaptic cleft, right, you know, this is where a lot of the serotonin, ACH, all this stuff lives, and it, it, it enacts or enables or takes away, you know, it's kind of like levers on a machine, you know, we're going to pull this one off, maybe turn this one up. Um, but when we talk about neuroplasticity, you know, it's just, it refers really to the, just the brain's neural connections, and, and it does promote um, uh, the promotion of the synapsis, uh, uh, synaptogenesis is, is the correct way to say it, um, the for, which is pretty much the formation of those new, you know, neurons, those new uh, synaptic clefts where we can have more. So we're actually rewiring our brain and essentially, you know, uh, providing new pathways. And we're hoping that those pathways are actually, you know, better than the current ones that we have, because obviously uh, we're in that state of fight or flight or just kind of mental chaos is what I call it. You know, things are just kind of out of control and you know, by creating new neural pathways and being able to kind of uh, reroute the way things normally go, you know, we're able to hopefully process those things, have the serotonin reuptake, you know, a little bit more effective. And it does kind of provide us with just new ways uh, to regrow our brain. And it's crazy. It's crazy to think about that we can actually adjust the structure of our brain just by using some of these drugs, ketamine being one of those. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the release of, you know, 
BDNF or the brain derived neurotropic factor, you know, that ketamine has been associated with, because we do see that it increases uh, the level of that BDNF, with a, which is pretty much a protein, um, which helps support the growth of all these neurons and neuro, new neurosynaptic clefts. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think of, um, I think sometimes we think of neuro neurotropic factors as like, like magic fairy dust to a certain point, but all of our organs have this, right? We secrete erythropoietin to make more red blood cells. It's the body doesn't just magically know that we need to do something. Ironically, in patients that suffer from PTSD that goes untreated, we see a decrease in these neurotropic agents. And again, uh, your your lung has these agents too, right? Not every cell in the al in the um, alveoli or alveolar cells. There are support alveolar cells. There are neuroglia cells in the brain that again support the neurons. Their job isn't just to you know send synapses, but they're really there to support it. And so as we see an increase in those things. Now, it's probably worth noting that there's other drugs that see an increase in, in, in these neurotropic agents as well. Um, but ketamine has sort of demonstrated that. Um, we've seen that for sure in animal models and too. Um, if you're ever really bored on ketamine, you can look at some of the animal models, the mice studies that went in um, to really looking at whether or not ketamine reduced a stress reaction. Um, it's, it's interesting to look at how we stress mice and then see what their response is to it. But there are well-validated tools to do that. And so we see that in mice, we see that in people. So to me, those things, those things tell me that we have another pathway here. This may not be the only pathway. And I think we know that in the mind. The other thing I was going to add in too, I think it's interesting. Um, we see this in patients. So I think sometimes we're like, ah, regrowing neurons. We've sort of grown up thinking that that's not the, the brain doesn't regrow. Um, it does. In fact, it sort of supports itself. Um, but we see this in patients that suffer from post-traumatic or um, from traumatic brain injuries. They too sometimes have to regenerate neural pathways. We see this in concussions as well. Concussion is really a stretching of the neurons and there's a ton of great literature out there on how we can measure football players using the geospatial sensors in their mouth guard to actually model what the brain looks like during a concussion but in essence we're stretching the neurons we're probably not breaking all of those connections. You can in a severe concussion, but we have to give time. And this is why after concussion, you're supposed to have like rest, like a substantial rest, not like I'm going to go to school and then just hang, like take a nap. It's like you shouldn't take do week much off, as we let beach, those put your, it, put your toes in the it, sand. <laughs> yeah. Stay in bed even. Um, that's what allows those neurons to sort of not necessarily regrow, but heal would be a better way to think of it. Um, we're seeing the same thing just as your skin and your epidermis can scar and it's a change in cell type. It goes from, you know, a simple cuboidal cell to something else, a squamous cell or something. Um, takes me back to cell bio, but that's what a scar is in essence. You can have these things in other tissue. You can have these types of tissues in your brain as well, um, where you have to reroute a pathway. So I, I think as we sort of think in our mind that this is really developing technology or, or developing science is maybe a better way to say it. These things are occurring and it is in fact possible. And the body secretes a, a hormone or a neurotransmitter, if you will, to help support regrowing these connections. It's not unusual to, for this to happen. This happens as we develop too, right? As our brain is developing, growing in mass, it's also building new connections. Um, and I think that's incredibly important to recognize um, as healthcare providers that the brain doesn't stop growing. In fact, it continues to support itself and continues to make more connections. And I think that's important, right? Because, you know, we can actually fix what's wrong with us. You know, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, me when I got into my dark periods and I know a lot of people who may be depressed or suffering from PTSD and are listening to this, you know, if you feel like there's, there's, I'm never going to get better, there's no, you know, treatment for me. 
there really is. And, and you can actually take control, you know, through using ketamine therapy or SSRIs or the myriad of treatment options that we're finding that are available out there that are becoming more and more mainstream, you know, maybe not off label so much anymore, but we do look at like ketamine and, and, and it's, um, it's effect with the BDNF because it does allow us to repair and, and cause the growth of those new neurons, but it also uh, causes a reduction in what we call the DMN, the default mode network, which is kind of when you think about your mind wandering and, and just, you know, your thinking kind of process, you know, overactivity of DMN has absolutely been kind of linked directly to, to conditions like PTSD, uh, TBIs, PTSI. And so we do see that by being on ketamine therapy, it actually kind of uh, reduces a little bit of that overstimulus, right? So we're able to think a little bit clearer. We're able to kind of calm down some of that mind wandering or that over hyper stimulated kind of thought process that we have, uh, which has been great, you know, because it does help reduce when you think about it, like when we talk about the DMN, it, it reduces those intrusive thoughts. So when people are like, Hey, I'm getting these intrusive thoughts or triggers is, you know, those nightmares, those flashbacks, mm -hmm. things like that, you know, ketamine therapy actually reduces that because it kind of, it, it suppresses that overactivity of the DMN. I think that's important. And I think one of the other things to add to that is when we're dosing it for someone with PTSD, we're giving, you know, we're not dosing it in a structure that's going to like cause that subconscious, like, you know, deprivation. I think this is one of the, we can give it in a sort of, um, there was a word I was reading online and I can't remember what it is now, but there's a way we can dose it. So you still like, you know, maintain most of your general function. You can drive, you can eat, you can do all of those things, which is I think different than what we oftentimes think in EMS when we think ketamine. Um, there was one they liked that compared midazolam and ketamine use um, for treating PTSD. And it's a lot harder to dose the midazolam and still let, you know, have someone be able to carry out their daily living tasks and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so by being able to do, to, to dose the ketamine and, and microdosing is not the right word, but in essence, we're giving sort of, and, and subtherapeutic is not the right word either, because in essence, you're getting a therapeutic impact. It's just not the therapeutic impact we sometimes think in EMS. Um, so I think once we get to this level of, of sublingual treatment or inhalation treatment, um, we see a lot different response of the body um, than being able to just go on. And I think that's one of the other benefits to ketamine here over things like TCAs. Um, there is a safety profile for tricyclic acids. We know as from paramedic school that if you can overdose on it, it's really a dangerous drug to overdose on, but there are other yeah. side effects. It's why it's why we've moved away from a lot of TCA use to SSRs, but there's also MAOIs that are out there. And I think um, as you talk about different treatments help different people, this is one more tool in our toolbox to bring it back to EMS to say, hey, we're, there's not a lot of literature to say it's this one thing, right? It's not like, okay, you have strep throat, you get this antibiotic, right? Um, it's yeah. really yeah, it looking that at way. what... Exactly. And I think that's part of the stigmatism too, that we have to get over. That's like, I'm going to take this and tomorrow I'm going to feel better. And the overwhelming evidence is again, it takes weeks before we start to see a therapeutic level um, of, or a clinical impact, which means we're actually seeing a patient's change in behavior. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting. I, I, we're not there yet, but there's some research that looks at prophylactic treatment of ketamine um, for people in stressful situations. Um, I think it doesn't shock anyone listening to the podcast that PTSD is, um, has a much higher impact in first responders in the military. 
I think one of the other things we we rec we don't recognize, but we will recognize into the future is there are some risk uh, factors, just like there are risk factors for heart attacks and strokes. There are risk factors for people that stuff, suffer from mental illness as well. Um, whether it's schizophrenia or PTSD, we can look at the risk factors. If you have a family member who suffers from one of those conditions, you have a higher incidence of it occurring to you. So there might be some continued, um, there'll be continued research in that aspect. Um, for it. I'm not, I'm not sold on the data that's out there yet, but there is some data looking at prophylactic treatment of ketamine for stressful situations, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And, and to kind of, you know, add to that a little bit, Michael, um, when, when we talk about, you know, cause you mentioned like the midazolam versus ketamine, you know, I, uh, I didn't have midazolam, but, um, they did put me on, um, I'm drawing a blank now, such with a D not Demerol. Uh, Percent, not, not Valium. <laughs> Gosh, why could I say that? Oh yeah. Diazepam. Yeah. yeah. Diazepam. The, the other D word. Um, but essentially, you know, I remember when I was coming out of my crisis moment and I got released, you know, they, one of the drugs that they put me on was Valium. And I remember, yeah, I didn't like that at all because it did, it, it kind of takes you out. You're not really very cognitively functional, especially as they're trying to dial it in. And it did take a while. And so when you look at that versus like when I was on Spravato, you know, the inhaled nasal ketamine, man, I could go to a treatment and within two hours, like I I'm back kind of functional, right? Like I'm not drooling. I, mm -hmm. I can think I can operate a vehicle. I can uh, go out and carry a conversation. You know, I have my wits or my wherewithal with that, you know, with me. Yeah. And I didn't find that when I was on diazepam versus the ketamine. And, and I like this because it leads into our kind of our next session, uh, uh, subject here. When we talk about the rapid relief of symptoms, you know, that is one of the things I thought was most promising out of the research that I was looking into uh, for today's episode is like you mentioned, you know, SSRIs, yeah, they're going to take you anywhere from four to six to eight weeks. And sometimes in some patients, even longer before you really start seeing that scaled effect where you can say, hey, I actually feel a little bit better. Um, but with ketamine, you know, you get a rapid onset and, and alleviation of some of these symptoms. And some of these, you know, my, my neurons aren't all scrambled. They're not all firing all over the place. They start being a little bit more concise and leaning themselves in a, in a similar direction all at once versus feeling like I'm getting pulled all over. Uh, and, and you see these usually within hours or to days, but and, and they last up to, you know, anywhere from 14 to 21 days after an initial treatment. So we are seeing that we're able to kind of get those relief from symptoms a little bit quicker, you know, than waiting six weeks of, Hey, I hope this stuff works. And I know people that have been on, uh, you know, been on SSRIs or started SSRIs and, you know, they give up, you know, they, they, they take it for a couple mm -hmm. weeks. They're like, this stuff is garbage. It ain't working. It ain't doing anything. You know, and it takes time for some of these medications to work, but that's one of the things I think I really like about ketamine therapy, especially in an initial crisis, because it actually does, you know, take effect rather quickly and it doesn't take you out of the fight you know, so, so to say, you know, you're still cognitively there. You can be present. Yeah. Um, it's not like some of these other drugs like midazolam or uh, diazepam, either one of those, where it really does kind of take your cognitive ability to think and, and act or, and you're kind of just, you become lethargic. That's what I did. I just remember being like, just like zoned out on my bed or my couch and not really being such a functional mm -hmm. human or uh, a spouse or anybody. So um, what have your, what has been your kind of experiences when it comes to, you know, just the, the onset of ketamine in, in crisis or as we initially start the dose? 
I think you're spot on in terms of why we're seeing it integrated into mental health treatment. Um, and, and maybe not expeditiously. I don't think anyone's running to get it. But I do think, again, it's one of the tools in our toolbox, which is why we're starting to see it. Now, I like ketamine for a lot of reasons. And the reasons I like it in a PTSD crisis state is the same as why I like it in an induction agent for um, intubation is it doesn't have as crazy of a risk profile as a benzodiazepine. Um, I'm not worried about you stopping breathing. Um, whereas if I'm intubating you, that's sort of the goal. Um, I'm not worried about you losing your airway, losing control of your airway. One of the reasons I love ketamine for intubation is because I can give to a hypotensive patient. Now, um, the risk with a benzodiazepine is that it can make you hypotensive, especially if I'm giving it to someone who's already hypotensive. Now, hopefully that's not where you're at in a PTSD um, state, but it does have some of those risk um, factors that come along with it. Um, I, I would add SSRI drugs when given to uh, do carry a black box warning that it can increase the risk of suicide ideation, especially in adult men young, under the age of 25. We've got some evidence that suggests that that's a problem. Like it's, it occurs. Uh, it's definitely a problem. Um, so I think that's one of the things now. Oh, it definitely there, occurs. I can tell you that conflicting yeah, and, and so I think I think that's one of the things we have to recognize is no no drug is perfect. So if I can find a drug that has less side effects than what I currently have, then it's worth uh, it's worth adding to the integration of mental health treatment. Now, um, I ketamine for just a continued treatment. I like it for a few other reasons. Many of our folks in EMS have to maintain a driver's license, which means that they need to they need to be you know they can't be under the influence of a substance while they're operating a motor vehicle. There's there's conflicting evidence on whether ketamine is an addictive substance. It's a scheduled drug, so that means there's a, a possibility that it's addictive. We know that benzodiazepines carry a similar risk. It's why they're also scheduled. So I think as we look at a drug that has less of a side effect to it, ketamine seems to be one of those drugs. And um, I, I go to, I, I'm at all the competence where people talk about there are actual side effects to ketamine, and there are, but again, we're not giving it in those high of dosages. Um, there's a couple of studies that look at what, what ketamine in sort of this inhaled fashion or this sublingual fashion does to blood pressure. And there is some risk for it. So you need to monitor your blood pressure. Um, but that's that tends to be about it. We don't see some of the suicidal ideation concerns that we do when we start looking at the SSRI. So for that fact, I think that's why you're seeing more and more folks think it's a benefit to add it to the mental health and just one of the mental health treatments. Yeah, you know, I'll, and I'll talk about that because you know the first time I got put on SSRIs was when I got released from the behavioral hospital after being committed for ten days for my you know I had a breakdown, I had a sinful event, and. Um, you know, I'd never been on SSRIs before my entire life. And I remember like that first week or so, it felt like it got really, really dark. It got darker than where I was, you know, and, and, um, it would have been nice. Cause obviously I, I ended up doing Spravato about four months after that. It would have been nice to have had the ketamine therapy in conjunction with starting the SSRIs to hopefully mitigate some of the suicidal ideations or at least bring some of that down. Um, I, I do still, you know, I'm still on an SSRI. Eventually you kind of get over that hump, but you know, I can actually speak to, yes, the suicidal ideations or the SIs absolutely went through the roof while I was starting that at least for the first week or two, I would say. Um, and if I would have, and I don't know, cause I haven't personally done it, but I can look at the studies and how they support it. You know, having ketamine in conjunction with starting SSRI, you know, would hopefully I would help, you know, 
uh, I would hope say, you know, mitigate some of those SI occurrences and allows kind of some, you know, it, it could be used as a bridge um, to SSRIs. It could also be used as long-term maintenance. You know, we've done both of them. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, it's important to know that like, you know, while this ketamine therapy does show promise, it definitely is not a one size fit all solution. Like you mentioned, you know, if you have a history of hypertension, you know, that's something that they monitored. You know, I took my blood pressure before I started treatment and I would take my blood pressure again, an hour into treatment. And they would take it one more time before I went home just to make sure. And you know, in my experience, I, I never saw my blood pressure move, really. Um, it didn't ne negatively affect me, but I also don't have hypertension. I'm usually physically active, so my blood pressure usually is running low anyway. So high for me might be 120 because I usually have her, you know, around a 105 systolic, you know. Um, but we also look at it, you know, it, you know, when we talk about ketamine therapy, uh, whether it be infusion, sublingual, inhaled, you know, this is all done, you know, under the guise and supervision of a healthcare provider. There's different methods, which we're going to get into uh, later on the show. But, you know, just understand that, you know, this is a tool and an adjunct. It's not a one size fit all. It's not a cure all by itself. You know, it takes a lot of things in conjunction, but it is absolutely a tool. I think more and more providers need to be, per, you know, uh, aware of especially, you know, those providers who might be in crisis or know someone who is in crisis, because I can tell you from my own personal experience, I really wish I would have gotten on that ketamine therapy a little bit sooner. Um, and we can talk about some of the roadblocks as we get into the show. But, you know, I have found, you know, some phenomenal, you know, results out of that, you know, and in, in using Spirato and using uh, inhaled na nasal ketamine therapy. I think it's one of those things like anything else, right? Like, we, whenever I was talking to my family about this the other day about how important it is to have a healthcare advocate, someone who speaks healthcare when you're going to medical appointments, when you're in the hospital, just being aware of the treatments right. that are out there and being able to advocate for yourself and say, hey, I heard there's this new thing or I've, I've heard more, you know, or, or go read, you know, do a Google search about it, read about it, skip all the sponsored ads on your Google search because those are the drug companies paying you to want to read it and go down to the NIH because they publish all kinds of drug profile stuff. Um, but I think just the value of having that conversation with a physician and being like, hey, have you done this? Have you tried it? Um, there's there's a little bit out there that looks at can we use ketamine and benzodiazepines or ketamine and SSRI drugs together? There seems to be a lot more on SSRI drugs and ketamine than there is benzodiazepines. But again, I think part of it is where are you in your PTSD treatment, right? Is this for a routine usage or a daily use or is this treating someone in crisis? Um, I think when we treat someone in crisis, we're looking much more at the physiologic symptoms or the, the manifestation of the disease. Um, it's the treatment on a daily basis where we're seeing, um, again, it's, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's one of the things that you have at your disposal um, that may, and I think um, we, we get excited when anything is new and shiny. Um, you know, when you get a new car, you're the same way. Like it's new, it's shiny, it's the greatest thing ever. I think we're fluctuating with ketamine for some of the new conditions, right? When it first came out, it was the best drug for everything. And now we're starting to see where there are some benefits that there are some times I don't want to use it, but there are some times where this may be used for routine use. Um, and we still think it's pretty shiny and new, um, and thus it gets me excited about it. But um, as we start to do more data analysis on how it works and interacts with other drugs, I think we'll see that. I also think we'll get to see more evidence as this is used to treat chronic conditions rather than just a one-time use. We'll get to learn a little bit more about its addictive properties as well um, and better explore whether or not that's a concern. 
Yeah, and I really do hope they they really start coming out with some research to see if we can start doing like you mentioned, like the sublingual. Hopefully, you know, in a more modifiable dose where we don't need to actually go into a healthcare treatment center or a behavioral health center or a ketamine center or whatever you want to call them to get this treatment. Yeah, you know, I, I do think there is uh, the ability to have you know use this drug, you know, use ketamine as as more of a maintenance and long term, just so like we do SSRIs. But what is that dose? You know, how does it interact? Like those are all still, you know, questions mm-hmm. that we don't have, you know, definitive answers to. But we do understand a little bit of the science uh, as far as ketamine as a therapeutic, and you know, intervention. And it is a good tool, you know, it has gained more and more attention um, as a potential treatment for, you know, a lot of or I would say a myriad of mental health conditions, not just PTSD. You know, we're seeing it being able to be used for anxiety, obviously depression as well. That's, you know, especially drug resistant depression, which is what I got diagnosed with. And and finally, I was able to, you know, utilize and take advantage of that tool and, and get on Spravato, the inhaled uh, ketamine version of, you know, uh, that's what it is. Um, but we, we always see, you know, new changes and where it's going. You know, I think when we talk about the effectiveness of ketamine therapy, once again, it's just that rapid onset of action, which is great to have, especially if you're in mental crisis mode, right? I, I've been in crisis. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I don't get there near as bad anymore, but you know, I can only imagine someone who's, who's there, you know, I, I know what that feels like to be in that pit of just despair and not feeling, you know, like you want to be around those suicidal ideations. Those voices are very loud. The thoughts are very intrusive and to have a tool in my toolbox that I can that I'm aware of anyways, and I can bring up, you know, with my therapist, with my mental health provider, my healthcare provider, and just say, Hey, you know, is this an option? Because there are, there is really good supporting science behind it and showing that we, we do get a rapid onset of ketamine. Um, it does provide relief for depression and anxiety, uh, the fear behind that, the intrusive thoughts and suicidal ideations. I think one of the other things that we, one of the other, and maybe this leads us into a bit of some of the stigmas of, of ketamine use, but sometimes we worry when a drug gets a new route of administration and inhaled routes are one that I think we don't do a lot with in EMS, though ironically they use things like Penthrox in, in Australia for pain relief and it's just an inhaled medication and works quite well. Um, but we worry that like, oh, an, an inhaled medication isn't going to be as effective as it going to work. Um, ironically, that's, I mean, it's, it's what we use for anesthesia all the time. Um, they can administer gas, you breathe it in, it crosses your alveolar capillary membranes, it gets into the bloodstream. The nice part is the half-life on those are usually a lot quicker than something if we're going, um, you know, intravenously or even orally, then it takes, a, you know, the half-life on those drugs are going to be longer. But um, I think that's one of the other things to think about. And um, as we talk, uh, in essence, it's a bit of aromatherapy, right? You're inhaling something and it's causing effects, but we can even do this with alcohol preps. There's a couple of really good studies that have demonstrated inhaling um, a couple or in essence, you take enough dig, big deep breaths of an alcohol prep that it reduces nausea and it's about as effective as Ondansetron as Zofran. So um, yeah. I think sometimes we think I've like, well, I know that works. This, I use it for some of my patients. Right. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. like that Absolutely. Um, and, and that's how you know you're like one of those jujitsu medics, you know, because you're like you're giving Zofran and mm-hmm. everybody's like Zofran. I'm like, if they feel nauseated, like Zofran works great when you're not feeling sick to your stomach already. It's more like prophylactically. But once you're there and you feel like you're going to go and upchuck or lose your dinner, 
man, I, for me, it's Benadryl, Zofran, and here's some alcohol preps under your nose. So, you know, there is, Absolutely. We, we know that route works, you know, it, it you know, it, it's a good route. It's quick. It's easy. It's on, it doesn't go through mm -hmm. first pass of the liver. So we're not breaking so down. So, you know, the bioavailability is a lot shorter with inhaled versus intravenous. And, uh, you know, even sublingual has a shorter half-life. And, and it's a lot easier to control, right? If, if I'm inhaling something and I'm starting to have a negative reaction, I just stop inhaling it, right? It's not like, well, shoot, you it's in your GI tract at this point in time, so we can't pull it back. And I've, I've had patients before on nitro that they start to get all lightheaded and dizzy and we're like, okay, cool, um, spit it out from under your tongue, right? So we're at least going to yeah. slow down the dosing structure. Um, so I think that's one of the stigmas that I oftentimes see is when we add a new route, it's like, ah, oh, well, is this going to be as effective? Is it going to work as well? Um, the inhaled route's well researched and well studied, um, and, and we as as clinicians really have to be sort of on the forefront of that. Where there's a, I don't know where it is in the trial phase right now, but TXA is looking at like it may come out as an EpiPen, um, where it's just an IM injection of and and the 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 in essence it might work a little bit better, but at least it's going to work the same as what it does IV. And what a better way to give it in an austere environment than with an like an you know an EpiPen rather than having to start an IV and give it that way. So I think sometimes we have to get over ourselves when we start talking about new medications and new routes of medications. Um, when the research is there to suggest that it's effective, right? We're going to, we want that research to be there. We want it to get there. We want it to be effective and safe, but um, sometimes we have to get out of our own way on that front. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be nice if they eventually come out with like a ketamine pen or something like that for, for, you know, a crisis or, like I said, you know, maybe it's, it's not an over the counter, but it's prescribed, you know, sublingual that I could have on hand where, Hey, if I start really yeah. having some SIs or something like that, but you know, we, we do know, and, and that's kind of where I got, you know, uh, not diagnosed. Well, I got diagnosed with treatment resistant, um, depression because I had tried three other, you know, medications for depression and neither one of them really had good effect. And so that was one of the criteria in order for my health insurance to finally sign off on it. So we do mm -hmm. know that we, you know, we use it, we are seeing ketamine being utilized in depression and it shows really good promise, especially where other medications have not worked, you know, and, you know, I can only imagine at least for my feeling when, you know, I know what depression feels like. It, it does not feel good by any means. I don't think anybody who has, you know, had a bout of depression really says, Hey, I, that was a fun time. You know, nobody really wants to go back to that place. Um, but we do see, you know, with treatment resistant depression and ketamine, you know, it's, it's quick, it's on. And at least for me, you know, I almost felt like my, after my first treatment, you know, within a couple of hours, like I was looking at life a whole different, like it finally has it, it, the only way I could equate to this, you know, unless you've ever done ketamine therapy is, you know, if you are cold, think about that as being depressed. When that sun comes up in the morning and it starts hitting your skin, you start feeling that sunlight and warm and you're like, ah, oh. you know, that's kind of what it felt like. I, I finally felt like I could look at things a little bit more happier. And it wasn't weeks. It was literally in, in minutes to an hour, you know, that I was feeling a lot better about myself where I was. And I can tell you like the reduction of my suicidal ideations and the suicidal thoughts absolutely started to subside. And they, as, as long as I was keeping up with my ketamine therapy and my regimen, you know, they, they were very, very infrequent, you know, to the point where they almost went away completely. And 
that's something that no other medication, at least for me, had done to that point. And so I, I, I think talking about ketamine therapy and, and utilizing it as a tool and, and becoming more available, um, we could talk a little bit about just kind of some of the, uh, you know, some of the hurdles that you might um, experience as a, you know, someone who is seeking out trying to get their provider to, you know, write you a, you know, a ketamine script or provide that kind of ketamine therapy. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, treatment resistant depression, when it comes to suicidal ideations, fear, anxiety, you know, all of that stuff, you know, there's so much good promise with this drug out there. And it shows that it works quick. It works fast. It doesn't have a lot of the negative drug profile effects that you would find in midazolam or your benzos and things like that. And so, you know, especially your TCAs. Uh, but we, we look at it typically, you know, how, how is this administered when we talk about ketamine therapy? You know, when, what are my options, Mike? I think your story is incredibly important as well, that there are people, <clears throat> everyone out there is learning in their own experience, right? And we can only speak to our own experience. I, I work with a great group of people and I always tell them that um, we don't have time to make all of our own mistakes. We have to learn from some other people. It's why I love reading people's biographies. Um, it's important to recognize that your story is going to benefit someone. Someone's going to relate to that. And then going and having that conversation with a mental health care provider or physician Hey, I heard this. What are your thoughts on it? Um, in terms of routes of administration, I, I, what, what I'm reading, what I'm seeing is that we're seeing inhaled um, ketamine as a as one of the easier ways to administer this in a in an outpatient setting in a clinic or something like that. Um, you, there's also some sublingual ketamine um, dosages that are out there. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of the studies that are looking at like an oral administered medication. It may just be that I'm not looking in the right place, but um, the inhaled route, the, I think it was two liters a minute or something was what I was reading in one of the studies. Um, that could have been in animals though, so don't quote me on that. Um, seems to be that that inhaled route um, or that sublingual route are the routes that we're seeing um, sort of for routine maintenance um, dosing. Yeah. And, and I got turned on to ketamine therapy from my, one of my part, former partners who also was, you know, struggling, you know, going through his own kind of journey of recovery and, uh, from mental health, to, you know, injury. And, you know, he turned me on to it, you know, and he was doing the IV and I was like, ah, man, I don't want to go in and just get stuck every time because I know exactly what that does over, over time to my veins. And so that's where I was initially hesitant. But when I learned about Spravato, which is the inhaled nasal ketamine, um, it's extremely easy, folks. It's not hard. Um, typically, you, you like like Michael said, you're in outpatient setting. Usually, the, you know, this is at some sort of uh, mental health kind of care provider. Uh, for me, it was a nurse practitioner that specialized in first responder trauma that I found. And, you know, I came in, you know, they, they kind of go over it, you get the pamphlet and stuff like that. And they send you home with a little trainer. And it reminds me of like Flonase or anything like that, that you would use. Really, it's just mm -hmm. like Afrin, like you just squirt it up your nose. And so you practice with this little trainer that, you know, click, and you're supposed to, you know, at the same time. And really, when it came time to my first session, it was very easy because they actually give you three doses. You know, so my dose was 81 milligrams times three, and they would do it every five minutes. So they would come in every five minutes. You know, they would take it out of the package. It's administered by a nurse or a paramedic. And you basically hold it and you, just, you know, inhale in and squirt it and let it go and, you know, full send. It was very, very easy. There was no fear. Like, I'm not getting poked and, and that, like just the IV portion was a mental kind of barrier for me to seek out ketamine therapy. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, ah, I like ketamine. I heard good things, but I don't want to get stuck every time I go in. Um, 
versus, you know, sublingual. I actually heard, heard a lot about, I know it's becoming more of a research and they're looking more and more into it. So that's probably why you, you weren't able to find the research behind it, but really, you know, it's three times 81 milligrams, at least for me, you know, one nostril go the other, or, you know, sometimes I get all, you know, plugged up. So you're just staying on one side, but I, I didn't find it very hard or challenging. You know, it, it was just, you take it, you kind of get up there and then you kind of get up there and you don't get into that dissociative state. Like you're not going to get into this where you're just tripping or it, that's not what it does for you folks. You do start feeling a little bit of a, you know, euphoria, you know, and for me anyways, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, I, I journal during my sessions, I would listen or watch, you know, a YouTube episode on motiversity or just something to kind of help bring that kind of healing space in. That was really good. I love the biurnal kind of tones I was doing to, you know, which is replicating almost EMDR at the same time. And you also have mm -hmm. ketamine guided therapy, which was, is becoming more of a thing. And I love that because I, I saw a lot of the benefits with my ketamine therapy. Uh, if I did the inhaled stuff, you know, it takes about two hours. You got to go in the office for two hours so they can observe you. So you're, you're there for two hours and you get released. And typically the last that you have someone there to drive you home, because once again, we don't have the studies there to show that, Hey, are you fully capable of driving a vehicle within how long? It's just not present yet. So they err on the side of caution, but I can tell you at, at two hours, for the most part, I was pretty functional and, and cognitive at that point. But what I found a lot of benefit is when I would go do my inhaled therapy sessions with ketamine and then immediately go over to my therapist and, and see her half an hour later or within the same day, um, having those two conjunctive therapies together was just, you know, I, I can't stress just at least for me and my recovery really did bring a lot of good things and allowed me, I got further ahead, I think in one month than I had in years just by doing some of these tools and, and using them. Um, we know that people, when we talk about potential side effects, we look at blood pressure. Um, but for the most part, you know, it does increase your heart rate. You might get some transient blood pressure elevation, but it really doesn't have that bad of a negative side effect or, a, you know, a drug profile. It's, it's relatively safe, um, as safe of a drug could probably be. Uh, so, you know, what are some of the long-term effects? Were you able to find anything as far as, you know, those who might be on ketamine for say a year or two, or keep going and utilizing as part of their, uh, their maintenance therapy? I have a question for you, um, too. Yeah, How often ahead. did you have to go back for it? How often did you go in for your treatments? So initially I believe it was twice a week for, I think it was like four to six weeks. So, you know, you're, you're going quite frequently. And then after you kind of get through this ramp up period where I was able to get through the crisis and really kind of, you know, get centered again, um, after that it was weekly and that turned into biweekly, um, because, you know, obviously the studies show we start losing the benefits of the therapeutic ketamine at about 14 days. Um, some a little bit later, some a little bit earlier, uh, but you know, from there it was just maintenance and I would go about every two to three weeks and, you know, it would just became a monthly kind of part of my routine. Just like I go get a mm -hmm. massage now, you know, a massage is good for not only my body, but it's also a moment for me and my mental health and wellness. I meditate during it. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things you just kind of add into your routine and what works for me is not going to work for everybody, but trying almost anything I could, uh, was where I was at the time because I knew what the other option was and I didn't want that option, obviously.
Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And um, I think we're sharing with people because oftentimes when we talk about things like SSRIs and MAOIs, you have to go in and get blood drawn every couple of days initially and then every couple of weeks. So very similar in the structure of dosing where you're sort of built, you're onboarding, if you will, um, mm -hmm. to the medication. So I think recognizing that and one of the barriers to success in any medication is needle um, is this fear of needles. And I think sometimes we're like, ah, we're tough and we can get over it. And you're like, the problem with that is that's not the case for everybody. Um, we're even seeing this with diabetics and some of the problems with poor maintenance of insulin levels is due to the shots that they have to routinely give. It's why we're seeing technology that just gets rid of the needle completely. And it's just a little thing under the skin mm -hmm. um, that routinely does it. So Anytime we can eliminate a barrier to um, to a to a therapy adaptation or adoption, we like it. So um, I think that's good in terms of long term benefits. Um, I, I I think what we're what we continue to see is again the PTSD symptoms and the physiology is what's impacting the brain, right? So shrinking of the um, of the frontal cortex, some um, increase increase in some of the the um, brainstem that's the stuff that we don't want um, so I think as we treat those signs and symptoms there's probably not uh, I mean I don't know I, I don't have anything that says the brain structure changes on long-term ketamine use I think it's probably more like anything else we adjust the physiology to the person so that the mm -hmm. physiology works out right we could look at this like any other disease and I think there's several mental we show our students these mental health commercials where it treats a mental illness like it is a physical condition you're like well just get over it and you're like just get over diabetes like no you have to take the medicine or you will die um, yeah. so I think what we try and do just like anytime someone's suffering from a physical illness when they're taking medications for PTSD, for example, is we want to regulate the medication to their physiology and their physiology and the medication sort of adapt together um, where we may see someone that can reduce their ketamine dose. We may see someone that needs to increase their ketamine dose. There's not a lot of dosing structures that are out there where we see an escalating dose or a declining dose. It's probably more likely that we decrease the frequency than we decrease the dosage. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, to be honest with you, that's how a lot of other, I mean, that's how things like even Advair work. Um, you maybe just don't need to, if it's a corticosteroid, so you're going to take it every day. But if you have some really bad side effects, you can reduce it to every other day, things like that. So I have a feeling that's likely where we'll go with ketamine, similar to your experience, um, is that we decrease the frequency rather than the dosing structure. But hey, if we can get you, if we can get you a medication that you only have to spend a couple hours every two weeks doing, it's exactly like what you said. It's a, it's a massage. It's a chiropractic visit. It, it's anything else that we go in and we focus on our wellness for um, even you know it's a long gym session um, the therapeutic benefits of going to the gym have been well documented so um, I would put it in that same category as anything else yeah it, it was great you know um, and and what I would go to say is because I actually I I stayed on ketamine for about I want to say eight to ten months I can't remember um, and eventually I just didn't I no longer needed it Right. I, you know, I, I assess everything that I do, you know, but what I, what I, and I don't have any research to back this. All I have is the science behind what the drug does. Right. So when we look at the neuroplasticity, you know, I do feel like ketamine gave me that opportunity to kind of rewire my brain as I was bringing in new tools, obviously, you know, therapy, uh, mindfulness, you know, eating well, sleep well, all of that. Like it wasn't just one thing. Um, but being able to bring all of those things together, but ketamine allowed me to rewire my brain. So eventually my other tools that were a little bit more holistic, you know, that didn't require an actual drug 
started to have more effect, right? Because I've, I've rewired mm -hmm. it enough to get over that crisis mode and, and really start utilizing my tool and have a really good, healthy, you know, daily mental health and wellness routine that I incorporate every day actually in my recovery, because it is something like, you know, a diabetic, like this is not going to go away for me. I know that what I can do is help manage it, mitigate it and keep it as low as possible. And, and the way I do that is through every day, having a good daily routine, but ketamine long-term, there's not a lot of good research out there because we're still learning about it. Right folks. So, but what I would tell you is look at the science and look at what it actually does. You know, it actually helps with that neuroplasticity. It helps decrease that chaos, you know, where I'm having these intrusive thoughts and that allowed me to find and utilize other tools as I was learning about recovery and mental health disease and injuries and all this. How can I use other things? Because I, I've always been a guy that I don't like taking medications if I can avoid it. I don't take a medication, just take a medication. I don't take hydroxy cut just to lose weight, right? Like I'll just go to the gym. Um, I'll work really hard or work on my diet or something like that. So that's kind of what I compare it to, you know, in, in certain relativity, but really it, it was a tool that got me through the crisis. It worked when other drugs were not working. Literally they didn't work. They, they, there was no response to my depression using three other well-known drugs. And this drug allowed me in conjunction with, you know, therapy and everything else to basically heal myself. You know, obviously it helped It gave me that tool, but mm -hmm. it allowed me to get in that mental health and wellness space. It allowed me to be present and centered and really kind of start working on the trauma that I did have. So, you know, for me, I found a lot of good benefit, even when I was in maintenance mode, you know, going every two to three weeks. And then, like you said, the frequency, right. It just got longer and longer to the point where I was like, no, I'm good. But I always know that if I need it and if I get in crisis again, I can go right back. You know, it's a phone call away. So I've already established that relationship, which is great. You know, so if I ever do need it again in the future, I'm not hesitant. I, I know how it works. I know it works. It does great things. And if I should, should I need it again? I know it's available and I can go back and get it. But, you know, folks, you know, these are therapies out there that if you haven't tried and you've tried other things and you feel like you're still at the end of your rope, it's a good um, opportunity to maybe take a good hard look at what these do, especially ketamine therapy, because once again, all I have is my experience, but I can tell you that where I was when I started ketamine therapy and where I was mentally and physically four months down the road, were almost two separate places, Michael. It, you know, they just, you know, I, and, and unless you've gone through an experience like mine, it's really hard for me to, you know, convey that through, you know, video or through this podcast. But I, I would just encourage individuals that, you know, know what the, the science is behind the drug. It does help with reducing, you know, some of these intrusive thoughts. It does help with the depression. So I'm able to kind of utilize other tools to really kind of help shine through. And it did, it made a huge difference for me. And man, I, I, I felt great for the first time. You know, I'm not saying I, I, I was going out and doing Willy Wonka stuff and then jumping around and hopping and skipping, but man, where I was when I came into the program and where I was at the four month mark were two completely different places. I think that's incredibly important. And again, I just, uh, your, I think your story just motivates so many people. I would, I would add to it that this, this treatment pattern is exactly what we do for people who suffer from high blood pressure and high cholesterol. We may put them on a medication, but we also ask them to make lifestyle changes, right? So it's lose weight, right. it's be more active, it's um, eat less red meat, whatever the thing happens to be. We ask people to both take a medication and a lifestyle factor because that continues to be well supported in all of the literature that says 
there's a cause to this and there's a multi-pronged solution. It, I think um, even in EMS, sometimes we we don't have the sympathy or the empathy sometimes we should for patients who there is a solution to their problem and they just need a little bit of help getting to that solution um, or there's some concern that they're not making the good healthy choices that would support them um, we see this in all anytime i can relate or try and you know merge behavioral health emergencies to physical medical emergencies i try and always say like lifestyle factors of medication are combined for physical illnesses and injuries all the time um, we do the same thing for mental health treatment so recognizing that all of the things that you said, having a routine, recognizing positive thoughts. I, I thought it was interesting. You were sharing a little bit about how you um, went through your ketamine treatment and then you went inside your, your psychiatrist. Um, we do this when we give ketamine and EMS though. Like if I'm giving a kid a sedation dose of ketamine, um, cause you know, we're going to reset their arm in the emergency department or something. We, right. We tell them like, what's your favorite sport? I was the last kid I had was a soccer um, player from like middle school. So I was like, okay, it's your favorite soccer game. You've just won the big game, right? Everyone's cheering. you you know, you're up on people's shoulders. We try and put them in a positive state because we see less of that reemergence effect that you can, that has been well documented in ketamine use. It's not widespread, but it does happen. Um, so we, we try and put them in a really good place. And so in essence, we're doing the exact same thing, just with a little bit different structure, um, trying to get you into the best mindset possible. So the drug has the best opportunity to take effect. Yeah. You know, and I, but, and that's the tool, you know, it, it's a really positive tool that people need to take advantage of if it fits for them. And, and like you mentioned, it's lifestyle changes. I had to mm -hmm. change my lifestyle. I had to really start, you know, I was grinding really hard, you know, working all the time. And so there's a lot of other changes that happen with that. But I also, you know, when we talk about the treatment options with ketamine, I do want to tell people, you know, and, and what I talk about on the show is kind of the landmines that you might step on as you're looking at this, because I stepped on some of these. And then that's why I like to share my story, because not all ketamine clinics are the same. So when you guys are looking for treatment therapy options and, you know, a ketamine clinic or uh, ketamine therapy through a behavioral health hospital or a physician or a healthcare provider, just know that they're not all the same. So please, please, please do your homework and really, you know, make sure that, you know, this ketamine clinic or whoever you're going to provider, you know, has an established history, a reputation um, that they really do understand ketamine therapy because, while we are seeing, you know, obviously a lot of great results and ketamine is catching on, there are a lot of people taking advantage of this from a business aspect and pumping out ketamine clinics all over the place. And they're not all the same. You know, my very first ketamine clinic that I went into uh, before I actually armed myself with good knowledge and education. And you think I would have done this as, as a high level you know, critical care provider beforehand, but I just didn't, you know, you, you look at something, my health insurance works for it. Great. I'm going to go in and you know, that place, you know, you, when I sat down for the first time, you could tell that they had just started up and they really didn't have a full understanding of how to deliver the ketamine. Like I went into the little, you know, office that yeah, I was going to have the treatment in and I looked around and it was very bare. Like they just, I could tell they didn't have it all together. Now, whether they do now or not, you know, that's another story, but I want to let people know that when you're looking to do this therapy, please do your homework on the provider or the clinic or wherever you're going to go to utilize this because they are not all the same. And some things you want to make sure that they, you want to look at is, you know, do they have an established history, you know, with treating first responders with PTSD, PTSI and PTSS while using ketamine? 
you know, do they use ketamine guided therapy or is it just, you know, spravato or is it just, you know, intravenous? Um, the other thing is the actual setup of the clinic. You know, uh, when I, I also knew very well, you know, early on that this clinic was probably not the one for me because they didn't really have any resources. When I asked them like, Hey, you know, I've never done ketamine before. As far as ketamine therapy, I've administered to a lot of patients in RSI, trust me, or for pain. I mean, I ended up getting a ketamine profile shirt. I should have worn it for this episode, but I couldn't find it. Um, <laughs> but essentially, you know, when I went in, they didn't have any resources to help prepare me for the session, right? So, hey, what should I be doing the day of? You know, what should I do before I get here? You know, what should I be doing afterwards? You know, for them, it was just, they looked at me as just like a, you know, a dollar sign, right? You come in, you get this treatment, you pay us and you leave. That's all they really cared about. When I find a really good ketamine clinic um, and provider, you know, they had resources, they had pamphlets. When I said, hey, you know, what do I need to do before I come in here? Hey, make sure you're staying off your screen, turn off social media, you know, try to be present, right? Really try to start being introspectively. And we really encourage, you know, after your treatment, you know, because they didn't provide, you know, ketamine guided therapy with a therapist. Um, you know, they recommended, you know, Hey, try to have, and that's who gave me this idea to go into my therapist afterwards. It wasn't the other place. It was this place that actually was a little bit more established, had a better understanding. And, and they gave me the resource. They also said, Hey, you know, when you're done, try to get outside, um, try to have good conversations, journaling, you know, writing ideas down and things like that when you're in the session. So they actually had a little bit more to provide, you know, um, sometimes with ketamine therapy, you're going to get some sort of, uh, nasty nasal drip, just like with Afrin and things like that. So, you know, they provided like, you know, blow pops and suckers and things like that that kind of help mitigate that. So it really told me that this, this clinic really understood kind of ketamine therapy and what they were getting into. And I gave them some really good feedback, obviously, as a first responder, because I wanted to help others behind me, um, and where they could actually, you know, continue to expand upon some of these things that they're doing. But, you know, I just want people to understand you might step on a landmine if you don't do your homework and find yourself in one of these bear clinics where they just hand you the drug, put it up your nose and leave. And you're like, well, what do I do next? Like, do I just sit here or, you know, and so really kind of uh, be aware of some of those pitfalls that you might run into. But, you know, I think when we talk about ketamine um, and how it has been integrated into more and more mental health treatment plans, you know, ketamine therapy has been explored and integrated into modern day medicine and treatment for a lot of individuals, you know, especially with PTSD and PTSI, you know, it does have some off label uses and stuff like that, you know, but, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of benefit to what we're doing and, and just integrating it in as an integrated uh, mental health plan, right? It's not just one thing. Um, I really would love to see, you know, the data as it starts coming out. Maybe you got some of that, Michael, with, you know, the combination of, you know, SSRIs and ketamine therapy at the same time, if there's any studies that, you know, show a synergistic effect or a negative effect. But, you know, I do think if we can integrate, you know, ketamine therapy, especially in the crisis stage, I really didn't like the fact that I had to basically prove to my health insurance that I failed these other three medications and now I need ketamine. When we have studies that show specifically that, you know, if I'm in crisis, that ketamine is a really good go-to option compared to these other three drugs they try to put me on at first. Yeah, I think a couple of really good take-home points there is um, find a trusted healthcare provider. You you may, you may not like the first one, right? Like, I think we've all had a primary care doctor. We were like, yeah, we're just not clicking. Um, we don't have similar lived experiences, which is oftentimes how we build trust in the healthcare system. And so if you're 
try to clinic a doctor or a physician's office that you don't like, don't be afraid to try another one um, that, that meet, you know, that meets your expectations. I think if we were having this conversation five years ago, we'd struggle to say, are there clinics that specialize in first responders, military members and things? Um, we've come a long way from that. The Department of Defense has pumped a ton of resources into this. Um, I can't remember what the organization was. I think it's the Americans. Um, uh, Psychology Association, APA. Um, they have a searchable database on their website. You can search by treatment philosophies. You can search by insurance providers, um, search by zip code. You can do all of those things and filter to find someone who specializes with first responders. Um, and that's a searchable field in their database because um, I was playing around with it the other day and I was like, oh, this is really unique um, as a treatment option. So find somebody that has, that understands the lived experience that we have as first responders. It's a lot easier to build that rapport that trust and then be a lot more confident in your treatment plan. So, um, yeah, I think the sky's the limit in terms of research and where we go from here. We're starting to see more and more research come out on ketamine. There are some ethical considerations and some stigmatisms that are still out there. I think that will take, I mean, there's stigmatisms on statin drugs and those have been around for 40 years and are incredibly safe. Um, so I think as we continue to move forward, taking, you know, taking the advice of a trusted healthcare provider and recognizing that there are tools that are out there to help, um, is, is the first of many steps. Yeah, you know, I, and I like how you put that. And that is a great resource, by the way. We have it on the Mind the Frontline resource page because, once again, I as I step on these landmines, I try to help others not stand, you know, step on the same mind behind me, you know, um, hopefully trying to clear some minds as we go. Uh, but essentially, you know, ask a partner if you know what, like I found out about ketamine was through a former partner, you know, they brought it up. And I think as we as first responders, have these more transparent and candid conversations around mental health, especially what are you doing? Because I, I don't think we share enough uh, as first responders about like, yeah, we, let alone do we want to share that we're suffering. Right. But we don't go, Hey, I'm suffering, but I got better or I'm getting better. And this is what I've done. You know, we don't do enough of that. And I think, you know, taking advantage, just like, you know, if I was going to go buy a car, I would ask, you know, somebody like, Hey, where did you have a good experience? Right. Mm -hmm. Same thing with any of these treatments, try to ask some of your coworkers, you know, I think we need to encourage more conversation. And, you know, if you're able to kind of, uh, take away the ego and really kind of be vulnerable, which takes two, you know, those are very large steps in some people's eyes, you know, but for me, um, I'm always vulnerable now because I have found that I get more resources or I get more help or I get the answers that I need instead of really just suffering in silence the whole time. So we have to talk about this. And, and you mentioned navigating some of the stigmas and some of the misconceptions about ketamine. You know, some people, when I told them I was doing ketamine, like my, 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 um, I'm not going to throw her a bus, but my mother-in-law, Barb, <laughs> love you, Barb. Um, but she basically, you know, I said I was doing ketamine therapy. She's like, oh, isn't that like a party drug or isn't it, isn't that for, you know, animals, you know? So a lot of people just don't really have all the information, but you know, I've, I've heard it like, Hey, you're on ketamine. Like, are you going to a rave later? Woo, woo, woo. No, I'm not like this actually <laughs> does work folks. And it does amazing stuff, you know? And I also just think about, you know, the stigma of people just saying, you know, as soon as I say I'm doing ketamine therapy to anybody in the medical first responder space, you know, that has any sort of, you know, been following mental health in the last, you know, five years, they probably understand that I probably have a mental health disorder or an injury of some sort. And I need to be okay with saying, yeah, I do. And it's okay because guess what? A lot of us do in the studies back that I just am the only one over here saying, yeah, oh, yeah. that's me. It's okay. 
And, and, you know, but I also look at maybe some of the lack of uh, the regulation and, and just people being concerned of using it as an off-label use, you know, given that it is a Schedule Three controlled substance. Um, and it is still, you know, subject to a lot of strict oversight. Like, you know, I had to go get the drug through a pharmacy. It had to get delivered to my healthcare provider. They had to administer it to me, you know, in step doses. So there is a lot of misconception around ketamine therapy and how it's administered. And really, you know, especially with the inhaled nasal ketamine, because that's all the experience I have with ketamine therapy. It really is um, an easy lift, I would say. Uh, and it is a very good viable treatment option for those of you who uh, have depression resistant their, uh, depression or uh, treatment resistant depression or if you are in crisis, like it, you know, it, I want to see like, you know, the use of maybe ketamine therapy and any EMDR in crisis, because we know they both kind of work in crisis mode, but I'm always looking at like, how can we, you know, affect essentially a code save quicker, right? You know, we know that high quality CPR, giving, you know, oxygenation early, getting an epi on board back in the day. And now we're kind of changing our train of thought, but you know, same kind of thing, you know, when we have someone that's in crisis and they come to us, uh, whether it be an ER or a behavioral hospital, you know, that we're jumping on it and using every tool in our toolbox and resource to basically get them out of that feeling as quick as possible and start getting some positive changes because nobody guys, folks, nobody wants to be in that pit of bottom of despair. And if you're in there, you know, I've been there and I feel for you. I hear you. I see you, but I also encourage you to look at some of these other alternatives and seek them out and be proactive with your therapy. You know, you cannot, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people, you know, that think that there's going to be their mental health providers going to be able to say, you have to arm yourself with knowledge folks and get out there and advocate for yourself and advocate loudly and be transparent and be vulnerable. Um, what are some other stigmas that you've seen around, you know, just ketamine therapy and stuff like that as it pertains to first responders? Uh, I think, you know, the big ones, and that is that um, it's, it's, it's got an illicit use or it's had an illicit use, but I mean, we see that with so many other drugs as well. Marijuana is probably the one that we see right now is they start to legalize it. It, it was, it's got an illicit use sort of, but it also has some great medical properties to it. Um, it's also naturally occurring. So that brings up all kinds of other discussion points. But um, in terms of stigmas, I think the news media right now carries out this concern for the use of anything that could hurt someone. Um, and there's a lot of drugs that we carry in our ambulances that could hurt someone. There's a lot of drugs we use in the in the hospital that, when used inappropriately, can really hurt someone. Um, so I think when we talk about the general public, that's probably at the top of the list. Is the, just the experience they've had with this has all been negative because that's what they've heard on the news. Um, so in essence, you get to you know be a patient advocate or to get to do some education and share that like actually there's quite a few benefits to some of these drugs. Um, so. I, I think those are the big ones is just that, that whenever someone hears of ketamine, it's usually a bad thing because it's on the news. Um, even, you know, five or 10 years ago, we had tons of break-ins to veterinarians' offices or we saw a spike in veterinarians' office break-ins because yep. that's where ketamine was used at. So it was theft-related. Um, and again, that was for illicit purposes. No one was taking it because they wanted to treat their PTSD with it. Um, so I think those facets are the things that we have to overcome. But I don't think that's different than anything else. I think sometimes we see the... Um, 
should say sometimes we see the same thing with Zoloft, right? And that's, you know, an SSRI. So you tell someone you're on Zoloft and all of a sudden it comes with the stigma that oh, it's for mental health and you've got a mental health disorder. And you're like, again, anytime I can bridge mental health and physical health together and say like, look, the manifestations of a mental health emergency are almost the exact same as a physical health emergency. You can, you can see a heart rate change. You can see a blood pressure change. You can see a respiratory rate change. If we draw blood, we can see changes in all of those um, categories means stress reaction things like that so um, I just always try and bridge it back to anytime someone doesn't understand it's an opportunity for me to provide education in essence in education we call the knowledge gap so if someone doesn't understand or feels like the drugs inappropriate for the use it's my opportunity to educate them I'm not going to win all the hearts and minds of the of the general public but I can probably help find some of them and help change some of their minds um, you know again back to you know CBD and marijuana use we still see that you'll still see people that there are, I mean, there's even states that refuse to legalize it and find whatever. I don't care the politics behind it. Um, but there are, you know, it's been documented. There are some benefits to it. There are some risks. You can have uh, hyperemesis disorder from it too. So I think, I think my opportunity anytime I hear someone with whatever their stigma is, is to provide some education and say, sure, that that very well could be the use. There's not a lot of people stealing ketamine to get high on it anymore. It's, it seems to be out factored by things like opioids. But um, nonetheless, it's my opportunity to provide some education. And and to that point, we provide all kinds of public education on naloxone because the opioid epidemic is, is so rampant in our communities that someone hears naloxone and they're like, oh, are you around people who use opioids regularly? Like, yeah, I mean, they're overdosing in a lot of very public places where naloxone has a benefit to the public. And it doesn't mean that you're doing anything illicit or illegal about, you know, your daily life. So uh, maybe another example there. But yeah, I think it's just an opportunity for us to continue educating the general public. Which is why both of us love educating, because I love being able to hopefully educate someone or, or impart some knowledge into them that where they didn't have or they had a misconception, you know, kind of setting that misconception right, you know, and that's part of education with anything, you know, uh, if you're trying anything new, whether it be ketamine, SSRIs, you know, you really should be looking up, you know, what it does, you know, be a patient advocate. And the way that you can do that best is by arming yourself with the knowledge, the education, the research, the stats, and, and all the things that support it or go against it, you know, but if you don't know what you don't know, you can't advocate for it. And I can definitely see the stigma, you know, more and more, hopefully getting broken down, at least on the mental health side. I can't really say for the initial EMS side because the news and the media always wants to portray that in such a negative light. But when we look at the future direction of ketamine therapy, guys, as we kind of wrap up today's show, you know, we are seeing that the ketamine therapy and treatment for PTSD and first responders continue to evolve. There's several ethical considerations uh, for the future as this new therapy is emerging. Um, I think it's important to approach any therapeutic intervention with some of a comprehensive understanding, which is education, right? And then just kind of really looking, you know, behind some of the keys, uh, kind of thoughts behind that. Um, when we talk about, you know, looking towards the future, you know, um, I'm hoping that we start getting a little bit more standardized protocols when it comes to, uh, you know, the crisis intervention kind of side of it. You know, hey, if someone comes in, and this is where I really love the research, I'm hoping with Find the Frontline we can start uh, doing some of our own IRBs and things like that. But we want to be able to understand, like, you know, if I can get this into a protocol where if someone comes in and they're experiencing a mental health crisis, they're having suicidal ideations, they're bouncing off the wall, they're depressed, the anxiety, the fear, they're triggered. I know what that feels like, folks. And the quicker you can get me out of that, I, I wouldn't be able to thank you enough. I'd say, here, take all my money because it's worth my life. 
you know, and that's really what we're talking about right here. It's life or death. Either you have the option to utilize a tool that will hopefully get you better or you don't take advantage of it because of stigma or misconceptions, or maybe it isn't a drug that works for you and we need to look at another alternative. But I do hope that we start seeing, you know, established national protocols when we use this. I hope that the consistency of the research continues to come out and support this. And especially the long-term effects or the long-term success is what I want to call it, you know, because we do understand a lot more of ketamine therapy now than we did even, you know, six months, even five years ago. And it's been, it's been in practice for a long time. It's just becoming more and more frequent. So I, I think we only look at all of that as far as the future of ketamine therapy. I think it's got a bright light. I really am um, interested to see, you know, hopefully they can get to a point where I don't need to go and I'm interested to also see because I know that there's money behind this, right? And so anytime there's money behind something, nobody wants to make it readily available. They want to control it. And so I, I do hope that eventually we can see a use where it's just like me taking my Zoloft every morning, or it's just like me taking my low-dose psilocybin mushrooms or my THC because I do have a medical cannabis card. I utilize a lot of different resources based on what I need. And, and those always are adjusting as I get better or as I learn new tools or new things, um, where do you kind of see the future of ketamine therapy going, Michael? And, uh, you know, what are your thoughts just on the overall episode? Any last words? Um, no, I think, um, I think just the power of your story, uh, really hopefully will bring, I know it does. So it's not a hope. Um, I know it will bring people to the table and it will continue the conversation. And I think that's my big objective is ask, right? There are different treatments out there and you have to be an advocate for yourself. Um, I think I would agree with you. I think the future is bright here. And I think part of it is this is a world that we don't understand. Uh, we probably don't understand as much as we do understand, uh, which means that the future is going to be multifaceted. I think one of the things that I often see people say or, or that I come across in terms of like, well, you know, how do you really measure improvement? How do you regulate something like that? Um, I think you there are validated tools that measure the response to PTSD. There's blood tests, but there's also just tools that we can do, just like there's tools that measure depression. You repeat those tools on therapy, and that's how you prove a benefit. And I think that's the future is demonstrating that there's clinical benefit here. I think that's what gets you mm -hmm. the regulation changes and things like that is to demonstrate that it's not just an anecdotal one person. It's a therapeutic group. We've got data and analysis that proves that. I think the other thing that this movement has going for it is it's really apolitical. Everyone cares about improving mental health. And as we talk about veterans' mental health, there's no one that's, re you know, maybe, but for the most part, everyone's very supportive of that. So that means we're moving in the right direction. And oftentimes that can bring about a bit of speed that we don't oftentimes see in things that, you know, has a certain group that agrees and a certain group that disagrees. Um, this is a really a group, this is really a movement where you see a lot of agreement. So I think those are where it's going. I think, again, we need large data sets to really help say, yeah, this is effective, this is safe. Um, and that will likely bring some of the regulation with it. I think that's where it's going. I didn't, I didn't pull an FDA trial though. You can actually, you can look up every FDA trial for ketamine. You just go to their website and type it in. Um, and you can see that there are some trials there going forward. That'll get us exactly where we want to be. So. Well, I love it. And I also just love your insights and I love that you nerd out on this stuff just like I do and really kind of bring the facts so we can share the facts. You know, hopefully I was uh, able to bring a little bit of my side of the story, but we combine those with the research, the facts behind ketamine therapy and really kind of educate and arm our fellow first responders in our community 
with the information that is important, right? And that's that's why we do this. You know, we give back to others and and help arm them with you know knowledge, so that way they can be a more educated, not only provider for those that are utilizing it, you know, because it works on both sides. Whether you suffer from PTSD or mental health disorders, you know, just understanding you know what ketamine therapy is makes you a better you know provider because now you're able to understand your partner who might be going through that and have a little bit more knowledge and and actually have a conversation which i can tell you firsthand you know having those conversations and connecting with others that understand where i'm at where i'm going through some of the treatments that i've uh, i'm currently utilizing or have gone through it really does make a difference for someone who is in recovery or in crisis. And I can't encourage that enough is just communication, buddy checks and, and having these raw kind of candid discussions. It should be no, uh, no different than me having yeah. a, a conversation with my partner about lidocaine or epinephrine and cardiac arrest or any of that stuff. It just, we got to break down some of those uh, stigmas that have been placed before us. And we are doing that. We're smashing the crap out of it, doing episodes like this. And I love it. So um, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up today's show. Thank you all for joining us with another enlightening episode of the Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline. We want to extend a heartfelt gratitude to Michael Caduce and coming on the show. Thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, and for everybody else, you know, together, let's work on this. Let's let's continue these critical conversations so we can build a stronger, more resilient first responder family. I thank you guys all for being a part of Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline. And until next time, take care, stay strong, and mind the frontline. To our dedicated listeners, thank you again for joining us on this critical journey. Remember, the Critical Conversations podcast is a steadfast resource for police, fire, EMS, allied healthcare workers, dispatchers, air medical, and military personnel, along with their families. Your support makes the impact of these conversations resonate even further. If you found today's discussion enlightening and want to stay connected with our ongoing mission, please be sure to subscribe to the Critical Conversations podcast. You can find us via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and the Mind the Frontline website. Your subscription ensures that you will never miss an episode, and it's a powerful way to show your commitment to fostering resilience within the entire first responder community. For more information and additional resources, visit our website at www.mindthefrontline.org. Together, let's continue these critical conversations and build a stronger, more resilient first responder family. We thank you for being a part of the Critical Conversations podcast. Until next time, take care, stay strong, and mind the front line.